You're listening to the Faith and Other Oddities podcast, brought to you by the Raven Creek Social Club, where we talk about faith and other oddities. For questions, comments, or to be part of the conversation, join us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, where you can find us at Raven Creek SC. Now for your hosts, Emily Dixon and Nathan Underwood. Well, hey, everyone. Welcome back to Faith and Other Oddities, the show where Emily and I read the Bible and talk about it, and uh, people listen. Emily, how's it going? It's going. This is one of those days I'm just glad we finally got a break in the schedule enough to actually be able to record. Mm-hmm. That's the kind of day it's been. So, yeah. which I, I, I'd actually had this thought before we began, and I, I meant to mention something earlier, but you know, this is where I'm like really grateful for people who pray that we can get through this and get it done because trying to do something like this, and I think every podcaster, uh, I know at least in the Raven Creek Network, will tell you that trying to actually sit down and record is probably one of the hardest things in the world. It's like everything happens whenever that you try to set that time. Yeah. So keep praying for us, <laughs> encourage us. And we're it's doing not it. not always easy. Yeah. We're doing this in the <laughs> afternoon, shortly after lunch. So, you know, it, who knows what's going to happen. Normally we're recording oh, in the morning, like first thing. This is You're going to fall asleep on me, aren't you? I'm going to try not to. I mean, just, <laughs> just keep it interesting and we'll be fine. No pressure. <laughs> I used to, when I was teaching college, that was like the worst uh, class time was that one o'clock class right after lunch because all the students would come in with full bellies and just, yeah, miserable, <laughs> absolutely miserable. So, but anyway, um, the good news is our listeners get to listen whenever it's convenient for them. So, uh, and I do know, okay, so here's a little trivia. I do know that we have some listeners who deliberately put us on so that they can go to sleep. And so I don't know if that's like one of the biggest compliments or not, but <laughs> <laughs> evidently our dulcet tones soothe people quite well so anyhow um we are still in second samuel we're still in chapter 24 we're gonna be there for a while because there's just so much packed into this one chapter uh we had started last week looking at those connections between um the Chapter 24 story, the Akeda, the binding of uh, Isaac, uh, the plagues in Egypt, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and now is kind of like pulling all of them together, uh, 2 Samuel 21, 2 Samuel 24, and those two accounts. And so we had talked about seven different themes that ran across all of them. I'm not going to recap those. Uh, They're on the last episode, but I want to keep going because I have more. And the reason why I'm throwing this out there is a lot of times when people say, oh, these stories are connected, they will tell you that they're connected by one word. And one word is not enough to connect a story. You have to have those connections, not just with keywords, which those are great. Those are good tip-offs to say, look here, see if there's a theme that connects and you can dig deeper. But whenever you begin to look past that one word, do you see the themes? Do you see this underlying structure that connects it? Do you see key elements that connect it? And that, those are the things that really say that you can read these stories together and, and look for a fuller meaning and definition to guide you. And what's really cool, too, is these kinds of things tell you how the writer of Samuel is actually how he is reading 
these other stories, how he's engaging these stories. And so this gives you a very ancient view of the Akeda, and it gives you a very ancient view of um, the, the, the plagues and the exodus. So this is one way that you can understand a little bit more about people closer to the context of the original writing and how they viewed these stories. So if you kind of think of them as uh, commentaries on these original older stories, it's, it's very helpful because now you aren't going through as many layers of interpretation to get back to the original meaning. Mm-hmm. And so, yeah, I, this is why I love it. So we're going to keep going with some more evidence to show you how these four stories are connected. I'm picking up on reason number eight that I'm seeing them as connected. Uh, we have sacrifices on behalf of another. Saul's sons were hanged before the Lord. Remember, Alter said that sacrificial language. And then David made burnt offerings. Uh, sorry, let me go back to Saul. Saul's sons were hung on, or hanged because of Saul's sin mm. against the Gibeonites. So they paid on behalf of their father and grandfather. David made burnt offerings and peace offerings for the people to stop the angel of the Lord from destroying Jerusalem. The ram was offered instead of Isaac. The plagues culminated in the Passover lamb sacrificed in place of the firstborn in Egypt. Uh, We have a barley harvest. Now, this one only connects two, and that's um, the time that Saul's sons were killed. Rizpah was there at the end of the barley harvest. Mm -hmm. And then the plague in Egypt. That it specifically says it was when the barley was an ear. In other words, it was ready to harvest. So again, we have the same time. We have burial. Now, this is only in three. And so I, I'm, I'm making note of when we can't connect all four, but where the three play off, two or three play off each other. Jonathan's and Saul's bones are buried. Abraham acquires a tomb for Sarah. David purchases the field that follows Abraham's story about uh, acquiring the land. Then we have sackcloth and grief, the evidence of grief. And again, this is in three. Rispa actually made the shelter of sackcloth. She made kind of a tent for herself. Uh, David and the elders wore sackcloth. And then Sarah's death and burial. So we, we have, again, those connections there. Foreign nations are pivotal in did three you, of the did, stories. Well, although in the, okay, Exodus, in the Exodus story, you do have the bones of Joseph being taken back. This is back. true. So there is a, a burial theme there. It's I had missed that. I had missed that. So, it's, absolutely. It's not right there with the plague of hail like you were referencing mm-hmm. uh, that kind of tied these things together, but you do have it uh, as, they're, as they're leaving, they take the bones of Joseph with them. Uh, so, yeah. So, again, I mean, this is the reason why when you have multiple people uh, touching on these topics and you get to see what you may have missed, and this is why it's so vital we have conversations about this stuff. Um, the 12th reason that I see them as connected are foreign nations are pivotal. We have the Gibeonites mm-hmm. with the Saul story, the Hittites, that's who Abraham bought the field from, and then the Egyptians with the plague. So, um, and that's what makes the story in 24 so interesting is because it's not about a foreign nation coming in and enacting justice on God's behalf. David is the one who enacts justice on God's behalf. He acts like one of those foreign justice, uh, one of those foreign nations that God brings in whenever the people have strayed. Because remember, God wasn't mad at David at the beginning of that story. God is upset with the people of Israel. So uh, even though the foreign nations aren't there, we also have uh, David acting in their role. Then uh, we have the angel of the Lord. He stretched out his sword to Jerusalem. He calls to Abraham. 
He's obviously part, a major part of the plagues, not specifically with the hail, uh, but we do see him uh, with the Passover. Then we have a super, oh, sorry. Don't you hate it when your eyes kind of jump all over the page and you get lost? So anyway, so we have supernatural sight. Uh, Gad the seer, he's mentioned David sees, uh, the, the uh, Jebusite sees. We have um, Abraham seeing the ram behind him. And then, of course, you know, the whole story of the Exodus is based on Moses' ability to see um, the burning bush and respond to that. A little bit of a stretch there with Moses, but I still think it's an underlying supporting theme that you can't lose connection with throughout the whole story of the Exodus. Fifteen, there's a, a gift of land that is offered and refused, and there's that purchase instead. We've already hit on this. Abraham with Hittite field, David with the um, field outside of Jerusalem. Sixteen, threes. Threes are a reoccurring theme. There are three years of famine in 21 and 24 both. We have the three choices of three and 24. We have three days of a journey to Moriah. Remember, the, uh, Abraham journeyed three days. Mm -hmm. Now, the plagues themselves, at first I thought, okay, we don't have a three there. And you know what? I was okay with that. I was totally cool with there not being a three in the story of the plagues because I wasn't going to try to manufacture it if it didn't exist. Sure. But then. I found something. It's the plagues themselves are tr traditionally there, um, viewed as three sets of three. So you have two plagues that served as a warning, and there's this announcement that Moses makes prior to the plagues, and, and this happens in each set. And then the third one strikes without warning. It is the punishment for not listening. It's, it's that final act where God says, hey, you didn't get it together, so now I'm going to just do what I want to do, and I don't have to tell you because I'm God. And um, hail is the first plague and the final cycle. And the, that final cycle is the hail, darkness, and the death of the firstborn. And it, the, it's the beginning of unprecedented events for the purpose of showing and the text specifically says this, the earth belongs to the Lord. That's Exodus 9.29. So you do have three's presence. It, it just, the number is not mentioned. It's just in the way the plagues are divided up in purpose and function. It's in those cycles of three. So I thought that was really interesting because I had never heard it that way. And by the way, we often talk of 10 plagues. The problem with that is you can look at different traditions and there's different ways of numbering the plagues. Mm -hmm. There are sometimes considered to be as few as seven. And then I've also read up to 14 plagues. So it kind of depends on how you number and it's real technical and I'm not going to get into it, but overwhelmingly this idea that there are nine official plagues, but then there's a great show or or manifestation of judgment from God. So there's there are different things. That's how they get away with these three sets of three. So then the 17th reason, I think they're connected. God responds to the plea for the land. Obviously we have that exact phrase in 21 and 24 of Second Samuel. Um the um those two are the only places we have that, but then also you got to remember with the plagues of Egypt, What's the purpose is to get the people back to the land of Israel, back to Canaan, back to the promised land. So, and what's Abraham doing? 
Abraham is claiming the land. So we still have that connection of land. And that probably is the most important connecting piece. It's the place that God shows you. This is what's happening, that Macomb. And we've actually done an episode, and I tried to find it, but we talked about the Macomb and how important that is to the theology. And so David is shown the field, and um, Moses is shown um, Mount Moriah. Sorry, not Moses. Uh, Abraham showed Mount Moriah, and then Abraham is showed Canaan. And so it's all about this appointed place, the Macomb, the place where God has chosen to manifest himself. And the element uh, missing in 2 Samuel 21, where this is Jonathan and Saul's bones, because it, it seems to be the element missing, because we don't have it specifically pointed out to us. But when does God respond to the cry for the land? Well, it's when Jonathan and Saul's bones are put back in their appointed place. Where's their appointed place? That's the tomb. That's the grave of their fathers. When they're not left where they had been hidden from the enemy, it's when they're actually put in the right spot. So we still have that thematic. If, if we don't have the linguistic connection, we have the thematic uh, connection. So all of this, you know, brings us to this place where we can look at all four, four stories together and see how God is just taking these themes and he's reinforcing them and he's playing them out in new ways. There is this connection, there's a similarity, but then there's these little distinctions and those distinctions show us how there's this progression of how God's relating to the people and he's really fine-tuning how they perceive him. And we've gone from this big broad stroke of Abraham and Canaan, where Abraham's going to claim this land, to now we're, we're bringing our focus down to this one spot that is going to be the central place of worship for God. And so now we get to take all this information and begin to say, how do we plug it in, in the way that the writer Samuel meant? And you know, the reason why I went back over that is not just to show you how they played together, but it's also to kind of refresh your memory. Because I know a lot of us know these stories, but we forget. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. We, we forget those little fine details that really make it come alive. So what we need to remember is the writer assumes the people know these stories. When we're talking about Abraham, we're talking about the binding of Isaac. We're talking about the plagues of Egypt. We're talking about something that is so pivotal and foundational, not just to the national identity of Israel, but to the individual identity of each and every citizen in the nation of Israel. This is why you wore your clothes the way you did. This is why you cut the hair, the, your hair the way you did, why you ate the way you did. Everything went back to these stories. Mm-hmm. And so if your whole life revolves around these narratives, then what you're going to do is you're going to internalize these things and you're going to see how the rest of the world connects to these stories and the writer is assuming that about his audience that this is where they're operating from they're not modern day christians that go to church for a couple hours a few weeks a few hours every couple weeks and say hey i'm good their whole world and identity revolves around these particular stories so if we narrow our focus now that we've gone this kind of broad view, and we narrow our focus back down to uh, 2 Samuel 21 and 24, 
we find the two stories present the impact of the kingdom's choices upon, uh, sorry, the king's choices upon the nation. So we began with the three years of famine. Already noted, yes, this is happening at the kickoff of chapter 21. We're told it's because of Saul's blood guilt against the Gibeonites. We don't know what that is. We talked about this previously, what it could have meant. Um, we have the three choices for the three consequences that David's offered, one of which is the three years of famine. Those connect our stories immediately. If you're reading, this should be a big tip-off. I need to be paying attention to these two stories in concert, not separately. Um, Saul never seems to have addressed whatever event happened with the Gibeonites. And there's no record of repentance or consequences in his world, in his lifetime. Now, this is where the, the difference becomes important because David actually recognizes his guilt without any prompting. Remember with Bathsheba, uh, Nathan the prophet had to come and say, hey, you're the man. David immediately gets it and he immediately confesses. Saul never confesses. He never repents. I don't think there's one time in Saul's um, rule and reign that I can remember right off the top of my head where he says, I messed up. Uh, he almost always has an excuse. Well, I mean, there there are some times. No, there's there's a couple times I know that he repents uh, of supposedly repents of trying to kill David, um, but it doesn't okay. really take very well. Uh, and I think there's some <laughs> other instances. Yeah, there's some, well, I mean, I don't know. We don't have the exact time frame, but there's some other instances in there where he does. Um, so we we can't say that he I, I never repents, but he definitely doesn't have a solid. Uh, it doesn't stick. <laughs> yeah, well, I'm thinking specifically of King Agag and the fact that, you know, he, Samuel confronts him. The prophet actually comes and confronts him just like Nathan the prophet came and confronted mm -hmm, David. Mm -hmm. And Saul's all like, well, you know, the people made me do it. And I mean, he's just like, dude. And so you, a lot of times that really was Saul's MO is that, it, that, um, that excuse, that that shifting the blame, and so yeah, I mean, there, I'm sure th there probably are some times when he's like, yeah, I messed up, but overwhelmingly, it does. Like you said, it doesn't stick. It doesn't have that lasting impact, and because there's not a lasting impact, that really isn't his legacy, like we see with David. Um, Saul was cast as Pharaoh in the very beginning of the book of Samuel. We talked about this extensively way back when. Uh, if you can go back and uh, uh, remember that time. And, you know, David even asked um, Saul, hey, you know, if, if God has incited you against me, can, and we talked about how that connects with that hardening kind of concept before in, a, in our last episode. Now, David was hardened whenever he he uh, was confronted by Joab. You know, David's words prevailed. David's words, it was that same word for hardened right there. So we have that connection of David and Saul for a moment, at least, both kind of inhabit, inhabiting that role as Pharaoh. Um, and and that's, that really is the question of David's story. Who is he going to be like? Is he going to be like Saul? Is he, by extension, is he going to be a, a king like Pharaoh? And 
the reason why it's so important that we understand Saul is cast as Pharaoh is because what did Israel want? Israel wanted a king like the other nations. And Pharaoh is kind of the, the most, you know, the epitome of what the king of other nations is like. He, he's what that would be the greatest one of at that point of time mm-hmm. in, at the Exodus. And so we need to know, can David actually be a man after God's own heart while being a king? And so we're going to talk a little bit more about how that, that plays out. But if you look back at the plagues, we see the purpose was so that the people would know that God is, uh, the God of Israel is the Lord. That's um, Exodus 7, 5, and that the earth belongs to the Lord. That's 929. And um, if you notice in Exodus 930, it says, if I know that you, and God's talking to Pharaoh here, do not fear the Lord your God. We've already have seen that Saul echoed these same traits throughout his reign. He does not fear the Lord. He makes the sacrifice when he wasn't supposed to. That's in 1 Samuel 13. He blames the people for his failings. That's in, again in 13. He demands that the ark be brought to him instead of going to the ark as was proper. 1 Samuel 14. He took the mighty men. Uh, again, Samuel 14. When he plundered the Ammonites, he kept um, Agag alive. He took the best. He put, took the animals that were supposed to be devoted to God, that Kerem. And then whenever God has anointed King uh, David as king, instead of respecting God's decision and saying, okay, if this is what God wants, he tries to kill God's anointed. And then whenever all else fails and everything has fallen apart, what's he do? He goes and consults the witch of Endor, which God has said, don't do. Saul has a problem. He never figured out how to fear the Lord. And that's what all of Saul's mistakes boil down to. Mm-hmm. If you want to mm-hmm. get very technical and just very simplistic on, on um, what the core issue with Saul is, he never figured out how to fear the Lord. And this is the reason why he resembles Pharaoh. This is the reason why he can continue to do what God has told him not to, despite the fact that time and time again, there have been consequences and painful consequences for this kind of disobedience. But it shouldn't surprise us because we know that Pharaoh did the same thing. And so if we continued with the list, we could add more things to it, but I think that kind of demonstrates um, kind of demonstrates the point of I'm trying to uh, figure out my handwriting. We're just going to forget whatever that point was because I can't decipher it. Fair <laughs> so, enough. Uh, but, you know, the, the, the point is, who did Saul fear? Saul fears the people. Mm-hmm. And that's in 1 Samuel 15, 23. And, you know, one of the, requ- um, the requirements for a king that's laid out in Deuteronomy 17, 19, is that a king write a copy of the Torah scroll, that he make it his own, and that he keeps it with him and that he studies it. And it specifically for the purpose that he might learn to fear the Lord. Mm-hmm. That, that's why he's supposed to do this. And Samuel reaffirms this as a crucial requirement in, for, in 1 Samuel 12, uh, 13 through 14. So I'm not going to read those verses because we've talked about it before, but I want to read in Deuteronomy 17. Um, verse 20, it says that his heart may not be lifted up above his brothers, 
and that he may not turn aside from the commandment, either to the right or to the left, so that he may continue long in his kingdom. Notice that last line, uh, this last line, he and his children in Israel. This is the, the point. If the king fears the Lord, if the king does these things, then he and his children are going to last long in Israel. And we have seen that Saul was very easily uh, turned aside. His heart was lifted up above his brothers. He did not respect the other uh, people in his country. Remember when he gets mad at David, he goes and kills God's priest. I mean, this is how, how bold Saul is, that he thinks he has the right to kill God's priest. You know, that's pretty audacious. Um, he makes himself an exception to the law. And he, he believes that his rage against David is, is justified. And that even killing the priest at Nobs is, is justified because he's the king. And David and the priest, by supporting David, have threatened his reign. And he cannot allow that to continue because why? He's more important than the God who's ordained something differently. So in Deuteronomy, uh, God specifically says, if a king does these three things, then, or these things, that he'll not be removed from the land, and neither will his sons. So we, we could really very easily and correctly say that the death of King Saul and the sons at the hand of the Gibeonites is actually the fulfillment of Deuteronomy 17, because now God is fulfilling what he has promised to do in the Torah. If a king doesn't do this, I take him out and I take the sons out. And we could, you know, stop there. I, I think that would be a sufficient explanation for what happened there. But I think it's just really the first layer of what's going on here. Because what happens to the son of the Pharaohs when they fail to fear God? And matter of fact, in um, Exodus 9, it says that Pharaoh exalted himself against God's people. Mm-hmm. So, to, so, Pharaoh's son was the last plague, the death of the firstborn. God cuts off the bloodline. It's not just the person who sins, it's the bloodline. And so if you take it back one more, um, one more step, and you go back to the sons of the rebellious watchers back in Genesis 6, and I know we hadn't really talked about Genesis 6 in a while, but notice what it says in Enoch 7.5. And this is the watchers. Uh, they, the, they, the watchers, will have the earth neither pe- not, will have on the earth. Sorry, neither peace nor forgiveness of sin, for they will not rejoice in their sons. The slaughter of their beloved ones they will see over the destruction of their sons. They will lament and petition forever, but they will have neither peace nor mercy. Now contrast that with what happens in Genesis 22, with back in the Akedah, that binding of Isaac. Abraham surrenders his son to God, but receives him back. And listen to God's response to Abraham. This is verse 12. Do not let your hand on the boy or do, not, or do anything to him, for now I know that you fear God. Verse 16, by myself, this is God talking, I have sworn, declares the Lord, because you have done this and not withheld your son, I will surely bless you. And I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of the heavens and the sands of the sea, of the shore, sorry, sands of the shore. So the one who does not fear God attempts to raise up himself and by extension his family, that bloodline gets completely cut off. The one who surrenders their son, the one who gives up their family, who says, I can I don't have to lift it up. I, I don't have to lift up my own heart. I don't have to defend my family. I don't have to try to elevate us. 
I can give it to God and trust him. These are the ones who, who retain their place within the land and the earth. And so um, it, it's really interesting that you see the, these, these really strong contrasts of people who, who try to defend their position and try to keep this prestigious uh, kind of place in the world, the status, how they, they don't just lose themselves. They lose everything that would be near and dear to them. Mm -hmm. And that's from the angels, Pharaoh, through Saul. And now we're standing here with David. What's happening with David? Oh, my goodness. How many sons has David already lost by this point? And so David is starting to go down this pathway. I mean, after the sin with Bathsheba, he's already lost the son that he had with her. Amnon is dead. Absalom's dead. We're getting ready to lose another one, at least, maybe a couple more. I can't remember the rest of the story, but we'll get there. And so the idea that there could be even a remnant, does that phrase sound familiar uh, to Bible readers? A remnant that stays in the land, mm -hmm. that is able to maintain the position. So, again, we're confronted with who is David going to be? What's he going to accomplish? What's he going to be empowered to do? Now. If you go back to 2 Samuel 24, verse 17, you'll see David's response. Again, the words, the same, the words are the same. Behold, I have sinned. I have done wickedly. But these sheep, what have they done? Please let your hand be against me and my father's house. David raises the metaphorical knife to his family and to himself. Uh, he's willing to sacrifice everything, his life, his reign, his sons, his family, the kingdom, all of it if it's going to preserve the lives of the people in Jerusalem. And because he understood what Saul and Pharaoh never understood, being a king means that you give everything for the good of your people. Mm -hmm. And he, so I, it becomes this really vivid lesson and this really vivid um, picture of what we're going to see in Jesus. And here's, here's what I realized when I was studying this. What was God's promise to Pharaoh? God actually made a promise to Pharaoh, and, and we overlook it. It's when God's talking to Abraham. He tells Abraham, those who bless you will be blessed, and those who curse you will be cursed. Pharaoh could have cashed in on that promise, because that's a promise to the other nations of the world, not just to Abraham, but to anyone who interacts with Abraham. And so because Pharaoh didn't believe the promise of God, because he thought he didn't have to fear God, this is why he lost everything. And so Israel actually becomes a curse to Egypt because of what God had promised to Abraham and by extension to Pharaoh. David goes beyond Abraham when that whenever he, he doesn't just offer up one son, he offers up everyone, including himself. and. In doing that, he opens the doors, he solidifies that place in, in history where Israel does become empowered to actually become an active blessing to the world. Why? Because now we're going to have the temple. Now we're going to have this place where God's manifest presence is, is always on display for the world, and that the people can come, and you know, there's the court of the Gentiles. You don't have to be a Jew to worship God in the temple. Mm -hmm. You can be anybody who respects and fears the God of Israel. 
Now, it's going to happen after David's life, but David is laying the foundation for that. So, um, I, you, you, it, it becomes this really great, uh, I mean, the whole story, I was getting so excited studying it because suddenly the, the contrasts are so clear. Mm-hmm. And you really see the intent and the purpose of God and how it began in Genesis. It doesn't begin, you know, somewhere out there in the future. It, this is, these are principles that have been consistent mm-hmm. since the beginning of time. Yeah, well, so, w- well, what you were saying earlier about when you, see the, when you see the themes, you don't have to keep every single detail of every story in mind because you see that the, the overarching theme has been consistent. And it hasn't been something that's just shown up, you know, in the first century AD uh, when, when God decided to change his mind about how he was going to treat humanity. No, it's, it's, it's been very consistent all along. And, and I, I personally, for one, I mean, I'm, I'm just shocked with how much of this we didn't realize growing mm-hmm. up. I mean, because we spent a lot of time in the Bible, but we also, I guess we kind of had some interpretive lenses on based on some of the traditions we were raised on or raised in, but it really is quite amazing. Like, because I mean, for, for the longest time, I mean, think of what we were told is that in order that in order for Jews to go to heaven before Jesus, they had to keep the law perfectly. Mm-hmm. And it's but then no one could do that. And so you kind of wind up with this, well, did everyone before Jesus not go to heaven? And then, yeah. and then you wind up having to explain away a whole lot of, uh, of things. And, and it's really, it, I mean, you think about the way a lot of this stuff was put together. It's like, well, was God just kind of wasting people's time in the Old Testament? <laughs> like, right. You know, it's, yeah. Well, it, it, no, it, it's it's amazing how much it moves, and and, and one of the things also I wanted to, to throw out here, uh, this this is something that I kind of realized the other day. You were talking about having a remnant in the land, and you mm-hmm. know, living in the land that God provides. Mm-hmm. Well, when you think about this one, think about how we were taught this one: honor your mother and father, so that your days may be long in the land that God gives you. We're told that means you're going to have a long life, but right? God speaking corporately to Israel at that point and saying, honor your, everyone, honor the traditions that that I'm handing Mm -hmm. down that your mother and father is supposed to practice so that I don't have to kick you out of Israel. Because It's a totally different interpretation (laughs) than we grew up on. Yes, because so much of the Torah is if you want to live here and you want to live in this land I'm giving you and you want to experience good things, this is how you do it. You you do these things, and I will bless you. You untie my hands. Okay, somebody's going to write a letter on that one. Uh, but he, I'm not saying God's hands are tied, but God's by the the rules that He has laid out for His interactions for Himself with His people. This is what He says: If you want me to do these things, then you have to do this. Uh, and it's that simple. And what's so crazy about this is time and time again. If you don't do it right, the doors to changing it are always open because you can always repent. This was always an option for everyone. And, you know, I've always wondered what would have happened 
when God goes to Adam and says, hey, dude, y'all guys messed up. If Adam would get, you're right, I blew it. What do I need to do to make it right? You, I have to wonder what would have happened at that moment. But because that's not the story we're told and that's not what happened, you know, that's always going to be something we just have to wonder about. But what we do find is God is faithful to forgive. And it's anyone who turns to him in repentance. And that is amazing. And I think that gets overlooked so often because we should be celebrating those points even within the Old Testament narrative, not just in today's good news. Mm. So, but, uh, yeah. So I also wanted to bring this back around. If we look at what David's doing, he he's responding on behalf of the people, which is so cool. Because Saul's heart and Saul's concern was never with the people. He was scared of the people, but his desire wasn't really to take care of the people. Even when he was on the throne, David was having to still fight and, and take measures to keep the Philistines at bay. Because Saul was so busy chasing down David, he wasn't taking care of business back at home. And so, um, but David understands that his job as a king is to be a leader. And to lead by example of what it means to operate in obedience and faith to God. And we see that that is definitely what the king is supposed to do. You know, if we go back to 1 Samuel 12, and this is verse 14, this is Samuel talking. Samuel says, if you will fear the Lord and serve him and obey his voice and not rebel against the commandment of the Lord, and if both you and your king who reigns over you will follow the Lord your God, it will be well. Verse 15. But if you will not obey the voice of the Lord, and but rebel against the commandment of the Lord, then the hand of the Lord will be against you and against your king. So again, we've got language that echoes all of those passages we just looked at. We've got hand language, rebel. I I won't go over all of that because again, at some point it starts to get redundant. But David, he accepts the responsibility that Samuel has laid out as part of being the king. And he says, this is This is the point. This is what I'm supposed to be doing. And, um, you know, we really haven't seen anybody in the Bible step up and take this responsibility to to bear the weight of another sin any place in the Bible, at least not to to this degree. Now, we have one really stellar example before David, and it's David's great, 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 however many times grandfather, and that's Judah. Mm hmm and now Judah repents when Tamar confronts him. But then you got to remember when you go back, and we talked about this on our Genesis uh, episodes, when um, David goes back to, to uh, Egypt to go try to get some food, he offers to take Benjamin's place. If Benjamin dies, ben- Judah says, you can kill me. Remember, Reuben says, if, if Benjamin dies, you can kill my sons. So this is why David uh, comes from the tribe of Judah that was bestowed the gift of the kingship or the, the being royalty over all of Israel is because this was the tribe that led the way and what it meant to actually be the brother's keeper, which was, you know, we can go back to Genesis again. You know, am I, you know, am I my brother's keeper? Absolutely. That's the whole point. You are your brother's keeper. Mm-hmm. You're supposed to be taking care of each other. And if you're not doing that, then you don't deserve the right to rule. That That's essentially what most of this comes down to. You want to be first? 
be last. If you want to be the leader, serve. All these things that we are told in the New Testament, and we're told this is the way that you live out our faith mm -hmm. as Christians, mm -hmm. the examples are here in the stories. Mm -hmm. And so we just have a tendency to, to oversimplify and to read these at a very shallow lev level because, hey, David's king. This means he gets to rule over uh, Israel. No, this means he gets to offer his life on behalf of Israel. Mm -hmm. That's what's happening here. He's offering his, and he did it in front of Goliath to begin with, and now he's doing it again towards the end of his reign. So David's kingship, matter of fact, the kingship of God, all of this comes down to the obedience, faithfulness, and being willing to do whatever it takes to show your love and devotion to your brothers and sisters, even to the point of laying down your life. Mm -hmm. And it, it's, it, it extends even further because it's not just about the, the losing of one's physical life. It really does become about being willing to give up the hope and the promise. And, and when I say the hope and the promise, I'm talking about being willing to surrender the things that God himself says you deserve because you've done the right thing. Now, that sounds really crazy uh, just on the surface because, you know, if God promised it, then I should believe it should come to pass, right? Well, absolutely. But this is one of those paradoxes of faith where both things are true because when Abraham offers Isaac up, he realizes, and this is a guy at the end of his life, how many more chances does he really have to have a son? Right. And so he is saying, I can even give up the promise you made to me if that's what you require of me. If that's what fearing the Lord looks like, this is what I'll do. David had been told that God was going to establish an eternal kingdom, that David's sons are going to rule. God had said, I'm going to adopt your son. These are promises made to David, and David's saying, I'm willing to give that up if you will withhold judgment from the people in Jerusalem. And so in a lot of ways, what happens is the promise and the hope have to die, at least in the minds of the person, you know, whether it's Abraham putting Isaac on the altar or David, you know, seeing the angel of the Lord at, at hovering between the heaven and earth at Jerusalem. They have to die to that promise or let the promise die to them. Mm -hmm. And then it has to be resurrected. And so whenever it's resurrected, it, it, why? Because they have submitted in obedience and faith. It, it, this is the story of Christ. I mean, this is, this is what we see in the gospel. It's Jesus' obedience and faith to the point that he's willing to turn it all loose in order that it can be resurrected. Mm -hmm. And so I think sometimes we forget how many resurrections there are in the Bible because we're looking for a literal you know, bodily resurrection. And in the Old Testament, many times it's just metaphorical. Mm -hmm. it, it, it's just that picture. So um, as I noted earlier, you know, the, the stories in Samuel end with David seeing this, the appointed place, the Macomb, and, you know, Saul's family being returned to their appointed place. And I, I think it's interesting that the stories um, invert the order of sacred place and sacrifice. 
In 2 Samuel 21, Saul's sons are sacrificed. But there's another who sacrifices. Now, now get this. This is so good. Okay, I get positively giddy whenever I see stuff like this. So, okay, let me preface this with nobody else picked up on this. Obviously, I think this is correct or I wouldn't be teaching it. But I want to note that maybe I might not be. So if anybody wants to double check me, by all means, check me. If you think I'm wrong, send corrections. It's the usual preface. You aren't going to find this in other commentaries is what I'm going to say, what I'm trying to say. So Saul's sons were sacrificed, absolutely. But the other sacrifice in 2 Samuel 21 is Rizbah. She is sacrificing everything up to, you know, even her own life so that Saul's son's bodies are shown the proper respect. I mean, she's out there in the elements. Mm -hmm. She has sackcloth for a covering. The wild beasts are around her. David understands what she's gone through. She is a woman who is not defended by anyone or anything. And in this time and culture, this is a terrifying position. If you don't think this is a sacrifice, then you don't understand what it means to be defenseless because that is exactly where she is. Now, in 2 Samuel 24, David is shown the sacred space and then offers the sacrifice. And basically what happens in these two stories is Rizpah and David trade places. Their, their roles are inverted. David wears the sackcloth. David attempts to divert the angel of the Lord, just like Rizbah had attempted to chase away the birds of prey from the bodies. David uh, sees the destruction of Israel and is, uh, as something he can halt through the merciful act of the king, the king of heaven and earth, just as the bodies receive mercy and respect by, from the hand of David, the king. So while the bodies uh, Rizbah guarded were taken um, to a place of death, David is invited to create a place of life, i.e. the temple. And, you know, because the earthly king cannot bestow life, only the creator king is possible, uh, capable of doing that. Um, David takes it as far as he can, but then God takes it one step further. And that's the beauty of this. There's a, there's a symmetry where the king of Israel is placed on the same level as this concubine. And you want to hear people talk with kind of a little bit of disdain. Uh, within a Christian circles, the concubine. Well, it's not such a big deal that the concubine got killed back in Judges because she's just a concubine. You know, she's a sinful woman is kind of the um, the underlying tone a lot of times whenever we talk about a concubine in biblical stories. We don't see them as really even a full person. We see them as a sex worker, mm -hmm. you know? <laughs> and so... Here's a concubine, a woman with absolutely no legal protection, a woman with absolutely no ability to control her own future. And David essentially fulfills the role in 24 that Rizba had fulfilled in 21. And so you have, like I said, this beautiful symmetry. Um, He's he's not lifted above his brothers. In fact, he is humbled to the same place and point where Rizpah is. Uh, he's plunged into this reality that brings him uh, uh, to respond with with a 
empathy and compassion for the people around him? Uh, can we have a more vivid portrayal of Christ's life and death? Christ who becomes humanity, who, who actually walks the earth and who steps down from that position of being creator and king of the universe for a moment in time to walk among us. It's, it's an amazing thing because now we aren't dealing with this, this God who is lifted above. We're actually seeing him do what he's commanded the king of Israel to, and that's not to be exalted over the brothers. It's God applying his own rules and his own standards to himself and, and saying, I'm going to walk through it with you. And then at the same time, we have him creating, just like David did, a place of life. Because what's the third temple? What's, what's the next incarnation of the temple? It's not a building. It's the people. Mm -hmm. It's those of us who now become the walking, living, breathing temple of God here on earth where God can be manifest. And so the stories really serve to show why David could actually be the king of Israel in such a way that he foreshadows the coming of Jesus and what the fulfillment of Jesus' life would actually begin to look like. And this is the reason why people like Paul, who had studied the Torah the, his whole life, could begin to understand what the purpose and intent of Jesus' existence really was, because he could see the lessons within these stories. And these are lessons we aren't seeing. We aren't seeing the fact that David is not, he's not Saul. Saul would never willingly place him in a position himself in a position that mirrored a mere concubine matter of fact you know we we don't have many of Saul's wives or family members mentioned you know his daughters are are pawns and so this is the complete reversal from Saul to David David, David is not lifted above his brothers. He, he actually does what he's supposed to do, at least in this moment. And I'm not saying that David um, does this perfectly, but he, he does do it well whenever he does it. So, um, you know, when I see these two stories together, I don't know. It, it's like I said, it just really made me happy because I began to see something beyond just, well, here's these two really weird stories. Mm -hmm. This is where the temple's going to be built. No, the temple is built by one who, who knows what the people under his care are, are experiencing. Right. And so um, I, I don't think it's improper to say that this moment of unity that David shows with Rizba um, is really the fulfillment of Hannah's prophecy for what the Messiah is supposed to be. And so we've got, um, we've got a little bit more here that we're going to pick up uh, on the story because it's not in Samuel, and I just want to pick this up so we don't lose it, is First uh, Chronicles 21. Samuel kind of ends with, um, you know, the plague's averted. We've got the place for the temple. That's great. Everything's good. And it doesn't go into a really interesting little bit here. 
Let's see, which verse are we at? And so David, after he bought the, he bought the lands from the Jebusite, remember, we got the differences in names. And the Lord uh, tells, in, in First Chronicles, it specifically says, the Lord tells the angel to return the sword to his sheath, which is really interesting because we don't have that little bit in Samuel. But in verse 28, it says, at that time when J David saw the angel, saw the, sorry, at that time when David saw the Lord had answered him at the threshing floor of Ornan, the Jebusite, he sacrificed there. For the tabernacle of the Lord, which Moses had made in the wilderness, and the altar of burnt offerings were at that time in the high place at Gibeon. But David could not go, there, go before it to inquire of God, for he was afraid of the sword of the angel of the Lord. So we, we've got this really crazy thing where David actually creates this new place to worship because he, he cannot go before the Ark of the Covenant, which is at Gibeon. And so, which doesn't quite fit with what we were told previously, because we were told that the ark had been brought to Jerusalem. So once again, we have this really interesting, there's a contradiction here in between the two accounts. And so we, we aren't given a real good reason why there's a contradiction here. We don't really know what's happening Unless we go back to what we were talking about at the beginning of these last four chapters, these last four chapters of Samuel not being chronological, because we believe, or at least most commentators believe, that these four chapters were added on after the book of Samuel had been written. And so if this happened before David brings the Ark of the Covenant to Jerusalem, now this makes sense. But the other thing it answers is why David is so determined to bring the Ark of the Covenant to Jerusalem. Because now if he knows where the temple is supposed to be, and he's got the, you know, kind of the, the place where it's supposed to be housed, laid out before him, now it's time to bring it home. Now, at the, at the same time, this raises some other questions, because why is David scared to go before it? So. What we need to understand with the story is this story is the last time God speaks to David as far as what we're shown, as far as in, in the book of Samuel. This seems to be the concluding event where God no longer talks to David. And there seems to be some kind of break in the relationship here that has caused a lot of commentators to, to have some issues with how David's story ends. Now, what is interesting is this also harkens back to, we talked about before, the Akedah, where God talks to, that's the last time God talks to Abraham. And so, just like with Abraham's story, there's two endings. We're going to find that there's two endings with David's story. Because even though 2 Samuel ends with chapter 24, and we talked about this previously, that um, it's believed that 1 Samuel through 2 Kings are one book. This David story ends a second time in your Bibles. It's going to be in 1 Kings 4, I believe. So th there's this really wild, um, sorry, 1 Kings 2. And so there's going to be this really wild overlap. And Abraham and David both 
deal with this this kind of double ending where there's kind of like the end of they've accomplished their spiritual goal. Mm -hmm. This is what they're supposed to do on earth to help everyone else. And then they live out the rest of their earthly life. There's also this idea of succession because Abraham's story with the Akeda, at the end of it, Abraham leaves the mountain. He's by himself. Remember, we don't hear about Isaac again until he gets the bride. The son disappears. Then with David, David's going to die. And then we're going to go into the story of Solomon. Well, where's Solomon been? We haven't heard about Solomon since uh, Bathsheba and Uriah had the whole situation with them. Mm -hmm. So David hasn't even seemed to have anything to do with Solomon. And so the two have this, this succession issue. But more importantly, all of Samuel have been, has been dealing with succession. Because if you remember the story at the beginning, Eli's sons were not fit to succeed Eli as a priest. Matter of fact, his, Eli's entire house is deposed. Mm -hmm. So there's your first one. Samuel tries to set up his sons as being the leaders over Israel, if you can remember back that far. And the people said, your sons are corrupt. They take bribes. We don't want them. Mm -hmm. So there's your, your second one. Now, Saul, we know that he's, he's dead, and Jonathan has died. Now, Jonathan seems to have been the makings of a great king, which maybe that was the problem. He was a little too, too good of a person to be king because, you know, politics often corrupts. They're really great people. But um, so there's our third. So now here's our fourth time where we have this succession issue going on. And it's only when we get back to that example set by Abraham that we have a successful succession. And once again, it's the son that David did not expect, just like Isaac was the son that Abraham did not ex expect. So I think that's really interesting there. So we will be not wrapping up 2 Samuel next week. Uh, we actually have a little bit to go into uh, about how these stories that we just went over, I know it's going to be crazy. We're going to talk about how the writer Samuel actually uses the creation story as his way to contrast David and Saul and within these two stories okay. that we just looked at. I Okay. There are so many levels to the story, and I'm not even exploring them all. I mean, we've hit four different, you know, four different stories already. Now we're going to hit a, a fifth one. And then we're going to get back to working through the chiasm and go to those next, you know, the next step towards that center point sure. of what is significant. So I'm hoping all of this makes sense <laughs> because it, it's one giant pile of spaghetti that we're just having to try to find our way through and put together in a way that, that I see it up here. And sometimes I feel like my words don't always um, get it all across. Yeah. But, yeah. Well, so. there's a lot to process. Uh, I, I'm trying, I'm trying to keep up. Uh, <laughs> there's, there's a lot, a lot going on there. I've got a lot more coffee in my system because I've had longer in the day to build up you know, sure. fill that tank. Sure. So <laughs> I think I could feel the difference today because I feel like I'm like, you know, talking way too fast. Yeah, we, we, I'm just so. flying right through the material. Uh, <laughs> um, <laughs> but no, uh, it's, it's not because of your, the speed of your speech. I'm just, this is like, I'm going, okay, well, I, I got nothing here. <laughs> 
Well, I can't wait. I, I, I'm looking forward to, as we get through this, because we got a couple of Psalms to go through, and I know you'll have stuff to say on the Psalms, because you always do. And then we're going to have fun stuff to talk about. Uh, you and I were discussing it on the phone the other day. You know, there's kind of a whole shift in uh, how the stories feel when we start to move into Kings. Yeah. And so I'm, I'm curious to get into those. I really can't wait to get to Elijah and Elisha. Those are fun stories. Yeah, those, there's a lot in those. <laughs> yeah. Well, and Ahab and Jezebel, you know, they're always uh, favorite stories for people to talk about. And so uh, I think it'll be good. But it, again, it's just all a really good foundation for when we take that dreaded and, you know, highly anticipated jump into the Gospels. Mm-hmm. And, and I say dreaded because I do not want to mess that up. <laughs> oh, yeah. Well, there's, yeah, that's definitely a, a very important part of our faith. And I, it, I feel like we need to do our best to present it. And I, you know, we will probably mess something up. And hopefully it's a minor <laughs> point and God will be gracious with us. <laughs> yeah. So. Well, all, right. all that being said, um, if anyone out there wants to be part of the conversation, Raven Creek SC on all the social media, ravencreeksc.com is the website. Or you can find show notes and other uh, shows by Raven Creek. Uh, one of the things you may have noticed is that uh, over the last couple of weeks, I've been ha- tacking on trailers for the new Open Wallet podcast with Joe and Katie Zaragoza, uh, where they are discussing uh, just kind of exploring finances and how best to do it as a married couple and what, what works for them. And, and, and probably we'll be getting into discussions with other people about what works for other folks. Um, so, uh, go check that out. Um, they just released their first episode a couple weeks ago, and I think the second one will be out this weekend, um, before this airs. Um, but it's great. Um, they work well together, um, you know, which is good because they're married. (laughs) Um, so yeah, go check it out. And, uh, we're also looking forward to maybe getting some other, uh, trailers for some of the other podcasts that Raven Creek has. And, uh, so this is, uh, just way we're kind of helping everyone out and wanting to spread the word about people we like and projects they're doing. <laughs> so anyway, everyone be part of the conversation, hit us up online and we'll see you next week. Bye. Bye. You've been listening to the faith and other oddities podcast, a Raven Creek social club production. Don't forget to follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. If you like what you've heard, please write us a review on iTunes or consider supporting us on patreon.com slash ravencreeksc. As always, thank you for listening and don't forget to join us next week. Open Wallet Podcast, an exploration of personal finance. I'm Katie, a numbers nerd. And I'm Joe, a 40-year-old punk rocker. And And we're we're married. married. We're here to talk about and figure out all the personal finance questions we all deal with, like... How do I read my pay stub? How do I dress better on a budget? How do I start an emergency fund? What goes into buying a house? And lots more. So join us on Open Wallet Podcast on iTunes or wherever you find podcasts.